0: I am. We're live. We're <laughs> live, baby. Hey, welcome to the our Professor videos. We have a wild and crazy show going on. Radio Free Mormon is in the house, baby. But first, as usual, we have to start this thing off properly. So let's get going on the starting so that we can hear RFM's wonderful wisdom.
1: R-F-M.
2: how are you my friend I'm fine I love that new intro I love the new intro music it sounds a little bit like the Carmina barana oh fortuna it does doesn't it it's kind yeah, it's of that like that music that they always use in the, the scary movies like uh the omen that sounds like Damien's theme that you've got going there
0: <laughs> I have another one that I can do that actually has much more scary music I could dress up as dracula or the great pumpkin or something from charlie brown
2: (laughs) oh my gosh well i'm so excited to be on the show tonight we have got something wonderful to talk about and we all know you and i know at least we got to jump right into this thing because we got a lot of ground to cover and we're only talking about part one of elder bednar's recent talk his two-part talk that ye may believe is the name of it
0: and may i believe am i allowed to believe
2: yeah you can believe whatever you want Oh, well, you, can, you just can't can. talk about it.
0: Oh, that's right. Yes, you must remain silent in church, like the women in the early Christians, according to Paul.
2: So, well, at least one of those passages that's attributed to Paul. He says different things on the subject.
0: He does. He's a very. We uh we discovered something really interesting last week. Week week before that, that uh, David Bednar, Elder David Bednar, had given a two-part talk, and we were going to do all 10 doctrinal points, but we realized we aren't going to have time, so we're going to take the first five tonight. We're going to discuss the unreasonableness of the critics thinking that it is unreasonable to have faith in Jesus Christ. That is what Elder Bednar talked about in his fireside talk. Scholarly colloquium, wherever he was, Salt Lake Temple, upper room. And we're going to break this up. So let's get to this first doctrinal point of Elder. Bednar. Oh, if you'll hang on
2: just a second, Carrie, you're jumping into it even faster than I expected. Is it okay if I give a brief overview of what it is he's doing? Absolutely. Go, man, go. Thank you. So, what Elder Bednar is doing is he, he has a like, talk.
0: Would that help or hinder? that's the
2: opening that's okay for right now yeah i think that's a good thing right now i love your slides these are slides done by carrie shirts
0: the backyard professor
2: yes so this is his thesis he finally gets around to saying it but he gave a two-part talk on this because one part was not enough to contain all of the things that elder bednar wanted to cover so his whole idea is this is that his thesis is It is unreasonable to claim that faith in Jesus Christ is unreasonable. This was a talk that was given Sunday, August 28th, 2022 at the University of Utah. And that was uh, the Institute building. Okay. So that was part one, August 28th. He promised in that talk that he would have a part two. By the way, in the first talk, he goes over five things that Joseph Smith introduced. All right. They're basically basic doctrines of the LDS Church that everybody already knows. He's trying to brush them off, make them shiny, put them in this new context, and try and get people to recognize that these doctrines prove that Joseph Smith was a prophet of God. All right? I don't. It is very confusing reading his talk. This is like when I went back with uh, Bill Reel on Mormonism Live and we did the uh, Halverson talk. I can't remember yeah. his first name but he's the new kid on the block who's the apologetic guru for the church. And the difficulty with his talk is the same thing I had with Elder Bednar's talk, which is that I have to really listen to it a number of times and read it and dissect it before I can understand what it is he's really talking about. And I have to understand what he's talking about before I can critique it. But I think we've gotten to that point. So five, he gives this long introduction in which he states his thesis, and then he's going to talk about five doctrines that Joseph Smith produced in his first talk. Yeah, and cool. then he's going to give the other five in the second talk, which he just got done giving recently, about a week or so ago. Yeah, and he gave, gave a second talk at the University of Idaho, where you know he was the president for a while. So he was returning to the scene of the crime to give part two. The thing that's about the thing that's interesting about it is that I'm sorry about this. I know this is your show, but just no, a I'll let you get a word in here twice in a minute.
0: Let, it out. let he, it out.
2: He positions this. He frames this as if he's going to give an intellectual, scholarly, secular defense of Mormonism and of belief in Christ. And he even goes so far as to give this well-known quote from Austin Farrar, which you, me and everybody at Farms has heard of a hundred times. Do you have that quote, by the way? If not, I do. Uh, i bet you've got it right there in front of you. Where? Well, if you don't, I do. I don't. So you tell me if you've got it there, okay? I don't. It's right at the very beginning of his talk.
0: Yeah, it is.
2: His talk starts off with Susan and I are delighted to participate in this devotional with you. He goes on, Austin M. Farrar, Farrar or Farrar, a renowned English Anglican philosopher, theologian, and biblical scholar made the following insightful statement. Then he quotes it, right? Do you have that in front of you, Mr. Professor? I, I,
0: I don't, you go ahead.
2: Okay, this is the quote. Though argument does not create conviction, the lack of it destroys belief. What seems to be proved may not be embraced, but what no one shows the ability to defend is quickly abandoned. Rational argument does not create belief, but it maintains a climate in which belief may flourish. Period, end of quote. Yeah. So this was basically the, the mission statement, I think, of the old farms.
0: It was. That was their, they,
2: they would quote was that all just, the time.
0: Yeah, I was just gonna say that Daniel C. Peterson was well known for putting that in his editorials of the old farm reviews. He said, no, we're not going to convince you, but we're not going to remain silent.
2: Yeah. Right. And so what he, what Elder Bednar is doing is framing this as if he's going to give a secular response to keep people right. from leaving the church because yeah. the title of it is that ye, that ye May Believe. And he chose that title for a reason because he thinks his talk here is going to be the antidote and the answer and the panacea for what ails people who are leaving the church and who are, are having doubts about the church. He's going to give them the key. And he's very excited about it when you listen to the audio. If Elder Bednar is excited about anything, he's excited about this. And you can tell by his manner of delivery in certain places. Yeah. Yeah. But what he ends up doing is has almost nothing to do with giving a secular argument or a rational argument in favor of Mormonism. Basically what he does is he goes through these 10 points, right? Mm -hmm. Five in the first talk, five in the second talk. We're only covering the first talk tonight. And believe me, that'll be plenty. So that's what he does. But basically he just puts them out there and says, you know, don't, aren't these wonderful? And don't these make you feel good? And therefore, isn't it obviously true? The only point where he gets to trying to be rational and objective as opposed to subjective with the feelings, right? Right. The only point in his talk where he tries to be objective is where he is making the argument that Joseph Smith came up with all of these novel, radical, creative ideas about religion and that he didn't get them from any place else in his environment. No. They are... Different than this is his argument that he didn't get them from the Christian churches of his day, because actually his beliefs contradict what the Christian church is taught. Yeah. And therefore, since Joseph Smith was theologically innovative, it proves that he's a prophet of God. So the first thing statement. I want to do, yeah. you want to say anything right there, professor? Well, I was just thinking, you
0: know, um, you can, you can truly choose any religious leader of any religious faith, and I guarantee you, you will find something unique about them that the others don't have or won't uh, emphasize or whatever. But nobody believes that makes those religions true. Otherwise, we would no. be all of those religions. So you would have hundreds of thousands of different unique beliefs in each and every single religion but that can't possibly make them all true unless you do the joseph campbell religions are all true in their own symbolic way and that's
2: not what bednar is talking about at all (laughs) no he's talking about eternal truths of things that really are both here and in the eternities yeah which of course mormonism has the monopoly on yeah now having said that and i you've just put your finger right on it His argument is not correct, which we'll go into. Factually, it's incorrect, saying that Joseph Smith came up with all of these ideas, which were unknown in his community and different from what other religions were teaching. All right. But for purposes of argument at this point, I'm going to assume that he's correct. And that all 10 of these things that he's going to list, five tonight, uh, that we'll go over in the first talk that they are all completely original and there was no place that Joseph Smith could have gotten it from in his environment. Okay. That he was truly theologically innovative on all five of these points and 10 when we get to the last, last ones. Right, Right. If we assume that's true for purposes of argument, even though it's not, (laughs) if we assume it's true, it's a non sequitur. Because as you're saying, just because someone is theologically innovative, does not therefore mean that what they are innovating on is given to them directly from God. And you gave a great example. Are we saying that anybody else who's been theologically innovative, and we've had them for thousands of years in all sorts of different religions, just in Christianity, there are tons of theological innovations.
0: Yeah.
2: That does not mean that they come from God. Right. So creativity in the theological sense should not be confused with revelation All or in right. other words just because you're theologically creative doesn't mean that it has to come from god and it can't just come from someplace else like your own creativity
0: yeah and they're talking about thomas aquinas in the chat right now i mean now there was a theological powerhouse truly his theology is it's so deep even i the backyard professor cannot comprehend what he says most of the time, but that's not really a surprise. By the way, I did forget the announcement at the front real quick. We wanted to say happy birthday to Cheryl Bruno. The oh, yes, Method Infinite. She will be on next week, by the way, to talk about that some more. But And I also wanted to show my new, my new T-shirt. But I'm not wearing it tonight because my wife wanted me to look good. Yeah, baby. That's handy. That looks like a
2: professional production right there.
0: Yeah, it is right there. Yeah, baby. I would have wore it, but you know, it won't show up. Yeah, whatever. Okay. Okay, Carrie.
2: Carrie, I hope you're in good voice because we've got to sing happy birthday to Cheryl. Oh,
0: hold on. Hold on.
2: Hold on. Oh,
0: I got to get a switch. Someday
2: you'll answer the question as to what's actually in that thermos
0: okay you ready to sing to her ready always
2: cheryl. Cheryl. <laughs> cheryl. Happy, birthday. happy birthday to you happy birthday to you happy
1: birthday
2: dear cheryl you done happy birthday to you Well, she's gonna treasure that.
0: Have to that again
2: well oh, okay. you've convinced yep. me <laughs> oh, so uh, elder bednar know. goes on to say my purpose is not simply to make a rational argument for the truthfulness of the restored gospel in church so that is his purpose but also he wants to talk about the spiritually essential truths i.e this list of 10 things now the very first thing he gets to because you know That when you're going to give a talk like this the first thing that you've got to do is not get into the discussion of what it is you're talking about the first thing you have to do is give a huge warning and poison the waterhole and make sure that everybody knows that anybody who challenges the teachings of elder bednar and the current leadership of the church is on satan's errand and so this next section immediately following is titled what satan's strategies of deception and spiritual destruction
0: yeah spiritual destruction that sounds serious
2: well it is serious and so he's gonna try and use loaded language as much as he can can to get people to agree with him in ways that have nothing to do with rationality which is what he said he's going to do but this is something that uh, they did at the um The Swedish rescue back in 2010, I think it's about 12 years ago that that happened.
0: Is it that long already? 12 years? Well, I
2: think so. When, um, who was it? It was um, Rick Turley. And who was the church historian at the time?
0: Uh, Do you remember his name? I do It was before
2: snow. It was Marlon Jensen, right? Uh, Rain? It was Marlon Jensen.
0: It was Marlon Jensen. It sure was. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So they 12, both go over 12, there and they've exactly. pl- they flown all the way over to Sweden and they're going to talk to him about all these problems that people are having. But they spend like the first 20 minutes talking about how Satan is the one who challenges the teachings of the church and who has doubts and encourages you to doubt to make sure everybody knows that to come up with the right answer, the non-Satanic answer, they have to agree with the church leaders. And this is what Elder Bednar is doing here as well.
0: He is, yep, yep, yep.
2: And he goes to two accounts, and I'm going to let you take over here in a second. He goes to two accounts in the Book of Mormon, where he, the first one's Corihor, right? So he reads from this passage. He takes out a couple of principles. I'm sorry?
0: That's not in 2 Nephi, is it?
2: (laughs) No. No, this is in Alma, I think. Alma chapter 30. And then he goes to the Samuel the Lamanite story in the Book of Mormon, and what he wants to draw out of both of them is two things. First off, that Cory Hor says that it's foolish to believe in Christ. Actually, no, it's foolish to say you know that Christ is coming because he lives before Jesus came the first time, right? Right. It's foolish to know that. And the second thing is, you cannot know of things which ye do not see. That's part of the same first one. But then he no. says that it's the effect of a frenzied mind and this derangement of your minds comes because of the traditions of your fathers. So those are the two things he's gonna pick up on, both from Cory and the people who are not members of the church at the time of Samuel the Lamanite, that they are of the opinion that you can't know things that you don't see or experience with your five senses. And also that Cory accuses those who do believe in Jesus or say that they know that Jesus is coming, of having a frenzied and deranged mind. So that's the next thing, and he's going to try and use those themes throughout his talk. Do you want to say something now, Professor? Please do.
0: Well, they're saying they're having a hard time hearing me. Can you hear me much?
2: I can hear you fine.
0: I've got my volume all the way up, so hopefully I can be heard. On the other hand, that might be a God-given blessing that I'm not.
2: Yeah. And I've got some construction going on here in another room of the underground bunker. We're throwing out a new wing. So hopefully that won't be too bothersome to people. I apologize for that. I've got no control over that.
0: They're saying to turn my microphone up and it's up all the way. I may have to get a new microphone for Pete's sake anyway. Yeah. This idea of Coral Horror saying that you can't know unless you see, it's very interesting how Bednar switches one little word in his talk, doesn't he? He says, you can't believe what you can't see. So he's changing things up to build a straw man argument against the criticism of Korihor. And I thought that was a remarkably interesting idea. You actually, Pointed that out to me earlier. And I think, I think that makes a lot of sense based on now, Al- We're in chapter 30 of Alma, where he's saying, where he's talking to Korhor. And what Bednar wants to do, and he testifies of is the senses, our eyes, our ears, our nose, our touch, our taste. I just ate pumpkin pie. My taste works great. They're good, but they're not as good as a witness of the Holy Spirit. So Bednar is trying to say something Korahor is saying against using our eyes to believe. But that's not what Korahor is saying. He is saying, you can't see it. Therefore, you can't know it. If you can't see it, he has nothing to do about belief.
2: So, right. And in a specific sense, what Corey Hoare is responding to is the belief that Jesus is going to come to the earth and do the atonement and rise again on the third day, etc., which the Nephites know all about in advance. And right. like the people in the Old Testament, but they got special knowledge. So that's what he's arguing about. And now here's what David Bednar is going to say, by the way, by the way. Backyard Professor, do you have that video? Which one? Of him saying that one thing where he jumps the shark?
0: No, about... I don't have any of Bednar's videos.
2: Can you go Sorry. to, I can't really share the screen, but if you can go to his Facebook page, remember that one? I don't have Facebook. That I sent you? You don't yeah, have you Facebook?
0: I don't, no, they won't let me on.
2: oh I'm sorry to hear that
0: yeah well you know it's their loss I suppose I can get on the mormon discussions Facebook but yeah I was refuting a Mormon apologist years ago and they kicked me off because he turned me in as a fishing site i I don't have that hold on i'm on the wrong i'm on the wrong one hold on I just might have it
2: Okay, because I'll let everybody know what it says, all right, because this is the place where Elder Bednar jumps the shark early. He really is all over the place in his argumentation. I know it sounds like we're all over the place right now, but part of that's because he is, and we're trying to keep up with him. That's true. He talks about how what you said, that seeing is not the most important thing to know something that you can have these experiences with the spirit that are greater than actually seeing and we've heard that before right we'll get to that here in a minute right but what he says here and i'll quote from him comparing and contrasting the teachings of alma and korihor is most instructive now i am quoting word for word here so pay attention because it's going to sound like i missed something because it's so strange
0: yeah
2: alma declares that Faith is not to have a perfect knowledge of things. Therefore, if ye have faith, ye hope for things which are not seen, which are true, period, end of quote. And then Elder Bednar continues, and he's going to interpret what Alma just said. Okay. According to Alma, Elder Bednar said, according to Alma, with Christ-focused faith, believing that which is true but not visible— is in fact seeing, period, end of quote from Elder Bednar. And I thought this was remarkable. I thought, I can't be understanding him correctly because it's obvious that Alma is having the argument with Corihor. Corihor is the one who's saying, no, you got to be able to see it to know. And Alma is saying, well, no, If you faith is not to have a perfect knowledge of things. Therefore, if you have faith, ye hope for things which are not seen. Which are true, and I was surprised that Elder Bednar interprets Alma exactly 180 degrees opposite of what it is Alma seems to be saying. So he says Alma's saying that believing that which is true but not visible is in fact seeing. And I was playing for time there, so you could find that video. Do you have that yet?
0: I I don't. I'm not gonna get it. I don't have it. Sorry. This, okay. idea, this idea that I where's see. Where's Maven when you need her? Yeah, where's Maven, baby? Come on, Maven. You got to fix my microphone. Uh, the thing I find is interesting is the faith in Christ. He defined the faith accurately as believing in something that is true, but you don't see it. But then he turns around and says, the faith in Christ is seeing. That just doesn't make sense to me because-
2: No, it makes makes no sense to me either. And in fact, it contradicts everything else he's gonna say throughout his talk.
0: It does, it skews everything that he says from that point on in fact, it skews all five of the points we're gonna make tonight on that and he says can you feel the power of the holy ghost the truth of these doctrinal foundations which cannot be touched or seen but which begin to enlighten your understanding and increase your faith that's i think that's why he's trying to elevate the spiritual feeling above sight
2: Right. But I would think that even if Elder Bednar doesn't recognize it, um, he launches off his talk by saying, I'm going to give a rational argument to defend the faith. And that's one of the main things I'm going to do. It's not the only thing I'm going to do, but that's the main thing I'm going to do. That's why he starts with that quote. But it never shows up. No, he really wants to focus on going over these 10 principles and then having people feel good about them so that they can understand that they are actually true, which is anything but a rational argument. It's gone from the objective to the subjective.
0: To the subject. And the interesting thing is, he is also <laughs> quoting scholarly articles, as we will see a little later, in order to give the appearance of objectivity. Right. He learned well right. So is.
2: <laughs> right, and one of the other things that he does, which is interesting, right, is that he's talking about Corihor. Well, Corihor is a straw man antichrist that's put in Alma chapter 30 by the author of the Book of Mormon, specifically so he can be refuted by Alma the prophet, right? Yeah. And so what Elder Bednar is doing is he is attacking this straw man figure, Corihor, who was put in the Book of Mormon to be a straw man figure. And then he feels like he's Putting Corihor in his place and showing how Corihor is wrong, and therefore, people shouldn't have doubts about the truth of the church.
0: Yeah, yeah, you don't want to be on the side of Corihor, or right. Caesar, Here's a, uh, any of them. Yeah,
2: right. And so, what I had written here in my notes was Corihor is a straw man figure in the Book of Mormon. What he says is a uh, caricature of what critics really say today. Korihor is a foil for Alma to argue with, and Alma will, of course, win the argument. Elder Bednar is taking a straw man character from the Book of Mormon, and he wants to argue against what Hor says, but doesn't want to say a word about what it is that is actually causing people to leave the church today. It may surprise you that he never talks about any of the issues about why people are leaving the church today in this two-part talk.
0: Yeah. Yes, but entirely
2: predictable, isn't it? And it says volumes. he doesn't want to go there. He knows he will not prevail if he actually deals with the issues. So he's going to talk around the issues in this sort of fluffy, generic, kind of ineffective way, at least ineffective from my point of view, by the way, the reason we wanted to talk about these is because elder Bednar obviously feels that this is his substantial contribution to the discussion of apologetics and why it is that people should not be leaving the church why it is that you can have faith. That's why he titles it that ye may believe. That's why it's two parts. And I expect that many people in the church who may be having doubts are going to be having these talks sent to them by believing friends and family in order to bolster them or chastise them or help them to see why it is that Mormonism really is true and they shouldn't have doubts about it. We wanted to have this discussion so that, those people can see the other side of the story and understand that this argument that Elder Bednar is making doesn't hold any water.
0: No. And it's not the argument that many of us are making today. And that's why we take issue with him saying, well, the critics are being unreasonable. No, we're not. Right. And actually, we, this is issues. The, oh, sorry we Go are ahead. addressing issues we are addressing issues that the book of mormon never ever imagined could exist and yet they're ignoring those issues so yes there
2: you have that. and i was going to say that actually this kind of flim flammery from the apostles is yes. one of the reasons people are leaving because one of the Absolutely. main reasons that people leave there's issues about the book of abraham he's not going to address that there's polygamy there's social issues there's uh Treasure digging with the same means of the stone in the hat that he uses to translate the Book of Mormon, which the church hid forever. Yeah. All those things. But the main reason people are leaving is because they find out that the leaders of the church have been lying to them for their entire lives. Yeah. There's they, a, a breach of trust.
0: Oh, good way to put it. And and part of that breach of trust is the claim to be apostles in line and on the same caliber with Peter, James, and John, but don't ask us if we've seen Jesus, because that's too sacred to talk about. Now that's right. Peter and a- my final,
2: my final comment about Corey Hoare is that one wonders why Elder Bednar doesn't just do to the critics what Alma did to Corey Hoare to settle the the argument.
0: Ooh, is that like a challenge?
2: Is that a challenge, Scar? Yeah. Why didn't he just shut him up like Alma did to Corey Hor raise his yeah. right arm to the square, use his priesthood and shut you up. What? Not me, obviously, just you.
0: <laughs> yeah. Interesting point. Yeah.
2: Yeah, because he can't, because he has no priesthood power. He knows no. it, but he's going to pretend that he does anyway.
0: Yeah. And he's going to be rational while pretending in his mind. Yes. All right.
2: Now, the next thing I went to under Corey Horror. if you're ready for this, or if you want to say anything else, please do, because I know I'm monologuing.
0: No, no, you're good. I think your sound is better than mine tonight. I'm going to have to fix my microphone. So I like the idea of how you're elaborating, and I can put up slides as we go. You're still in the opening part, aren't you? Yes. Yeah. 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 I, th- I'm not sure if this slide is ready yet, uh, but when you finish yours, you let me know and I'll put that slide up and you can read it out loud.
2: Okay. Well, one of the things he chastises and upbraids Corey Horde for is saying that members of the, the church believers in Christ have frenzied and deranged minds. Right. Right. And so he wants to show, well, obviously we don't have frenzied and deranged minds I and mean, he's trying to insult us. Who does he think he is anyway? That's a dumb argument. Well, the fact is Correct. it is a dumb argument, which is, I'm not almost said that's why it appears in the book of Mormon. That's not why it appears in the book of Mormon, but it's a bad argument. I don't think that members of the church or believers of any religion necessarily have frenzied and deranged minds. That's some of the smartest people I know are faithful members of the church. You used to be a faithful member of the the church and you're one of the smartest people I know. So that's a bad argument is what I'm saying. So that's nonsense, you know. They come in all stripes. Some are very intelligent people. Belief is not about intelligence. It is an entirely different quality altogether. Yeah. But then we get to this place where he wants to say that Corey who are insisting you cannot know of things which you do not see period end of quote right you cannot know of things which you do not see he's going to try and say that there's an argumentum absurdum that elder bednar is going to try and employ i don't think he employs it successfully but he's going to try and say that if you believe that that is true then it's going to wipe away all these other different ways we have of gaining knowledge
0: knowledge yeah
2: And here's what he says, okay? I'm just going to give the quote and then we'll take it apart.
0: Do it. Let's do it. That
2: one simple assertion that you cannot know of things which you do not see, that one simple assertion denigrates any means of knowing other than seeing. It falsely sweeps away all historical knowledge, all knowledge obtained through vicarious learning, all individual or collective intuition, all knowledge resulting from cognitive construction and dismisses the existence of objects or places not personally seen. In summary, if we do not see or experience something, we cannot know it, period, end of quote. Now, I think Corey Hoare is gonna win this argument with Elder Bednar, because Corey Hoare is uh, coming at it from the empirical point of view, that the only way right. you can know things is through your own senses, right? Right, right. But Elder Bednar is saying that if you follow that line of thinking, then, There are all these other things that we rely on for knowledge that get thrown out in the trash heap. So he starts about all historical knowledge, and that's what he says. Well, the problem is, is that studying history doesn't give us knowledge (laughs) about history. It doesn't mean that we were there and saw it. We can't say we know something happened just because we're reading about it in history books, right?
0: I agree. Yep.
2: And I think that any historian worth their salt is not going to say, we know this happened, but merely that based upon the sources that we have and the analysis that I can bring to it, this is what is most likely to have happened.
0: Right. And there's always going to be an adjustment to whatever it is we say we know. Yeah.
2: Right. So I think that when he says that sweeps away all historical knowledge, I don't think there's any historical knowledge in the first place to be swept away.
0: But he's that making sense? a big, yeah, it, it does. He's making a big impressive list to make him look rational though.
2: Right? Right. But I think that when I analyze it, it shows me the opposite of his being rational. He Then he, he says, it sweeps away all knowledge obtained through vicarious learning, which means reading books or the internet or whatever it is, a vicarious yeah. learning, learning about something in a means other than actually being there to witness it yourself well guess what that's not knowledge either is it no it's something that we're reading what other people have said and then hopefully we'll try and figure out what we think but still it's not knowledge because we're not witnessing it we're not experiencing it through our senses so that's one another point for cory i think he then says um it's uh it gets rid of all individual and collective intuition. So he's taking something called intuition. I don't know what the difference is supposed to be between individual and collective intuition. Well, collective I know what individual and in, yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Collective is much more people together. So there's less chance of being wrong. Right. If 10,000 people believe something, it's more true than if only two do. Right. Isn't that Bednar's thinking?
2: I have no idea because he doesn't explain. You know, you think he'd be doing a lot more explaining of what his position is since he's already declared he's going to give a rational argument in favor of Mormonism and a belief in Jesus. But he keeps failing at every turn is the problem. So I know what individual intuition is, right? Intuition is not knowledge. I don't care if it's individual or collective. So how would... Corihor saying, You cannot know of things which you do not see. Get rid of any knowledge that's obtained through intuition when knowledge is not gained through intuition by definition. Did that part make sense?
0: Good point. Yeah.
2: And finally, he goes to cognitive construction. Yeah. Wow. If we follow Corihor, we can't even rely on cognitive construction to give us knowledge. Well, we shouldn't be relying on cognitive construction to give us knowledge it may be something that ends up being likely true or maybe more likely not true but we can't come to knowledge through cognitive constructions and cognitive constructions what
0: yeah we're just putting i mean it, it sounds to me like we're just putting pieces together in cognitive construction but that's no guarantee of knowledge, right?
2: No, not at all. Uh, I think that to try and read him as charitably as I can and make as much sense out of what he's saying as I can, he's trying to say cognitive construction is like when you know a couple of facts, A, B, maybe C, and based upon those facts, you construct something that leads to a conclusion that is beyond what those facts say, right?" right? So you've got a cognitive construction. Well, that's not going to le- That's not going to give you knowledge of something. It's just going to give you a construction that you may believe is true based upon what you do know already.
0: Right. And we've got people in chat. Geoplanet Jane is asking WTF is cognitive construction. We're trying to work through it, but Elder Bednar never described it. So that's our question too, Jane. <laughs> and it's his burden to
2: do it. He set himself the task. He's given himself two complete talks to go over it. But he never gets there. Instead, he muddies the water and it's like he's trying to sound intellectual without actually showing up at the party. (laughs) And in fact, that's the thing that the only reason I say that is, first off, because I'm rude and generally, but also because he's going to accuse the critics of the church of engaging in pseudo intellectualism. Yes, he uses that expression. The General Pse- Authority, who is engaged in pseudo-intellectualism throughout his entire talk, accuses those who criticize him, including Cory Hoare, of being the pseudo-intellectuals. That's rich.
0: Well, we're not even criticizing him yet. We're asking him, what do your words mean? You have not defined anything. You've simply thrown stuff out there in fancy, you know, cognitive construction is a good example. So, yeah. Oh, right. And the final
2: thing he says, it also dismisses the existence of places or objects we have not personally seen. That's not correct. Saying that you don't know of things which you do not see doesn't dismiss the existence of places or objects we have not personally seen. It just means that we cannot know of their existence if we have not personally seen them.
0: Hmm. You're getting the
2: distinction I'm making there.
0: Yes. Yeah.
2: So Elder Bednar is not being
0: reasonable.
2: Well, I know <laughs> he's not being unreasonable. It's the unreasonable Elder Bednar. <laughs> he's not being. He's not being um, sharp. He's not being concrete. He's not being specific or accurate with his yeah. language.
0: Right. He, he's not clarifying. He's making it more difficult. Yeah.
2: Right. And he's going over the top and trying to show that Corey is wrong when he says you cannot know of things which you do not see. But everything every example that he gives of the kinds of knowledge that that gets rid of if you follow to its logical conclusion ends up favoring what Corey whore is saying and undercutting what David Bednar is saying.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Interesting.
2: And that's right before the paragraph where he says, according to Alma, with Christ focused faith, believing that which is true but not visible is in fact seeing.
0: Seeing, yeah. But it's not about believing. That's where he's changing the parameter, that's where he's picking up the straw man. Yeah. Yes. Because and what I said here not knowledge,
2: right? Yeah, and I've made some comments like Elder Bednar is all over the place. He's now saying that belief in Christ is, in fact, seeing. First, faith is not seeing. Alma makes that clear. But then Elder Bednar twists the words of Alma worse than he is twisting the words of Korihor.
0: Korihor, yeah.
2: Yeah, Alma actually says the opposite, that faith is not to have a perfect knowledge of things. It is hope for things that are unseen that are true. And out of that, Elder Bednar claims Alma is saying that believing what is true and not visible is in fact seeing. That's his quote. It is in fact seeing. So he's not using it uh, in any way other than literally, which is signaled by his use of the words in fact. It is in fact seeing, when obviously it's anything but. And even Alma agrees with me over Elder Bednar. And the thing that really was remarkable to me about this statement is that Back last um, last summer when I was at Sunstone, I did this magic show, right? Mm-hmm. And I showed that a common means of fooling people that magicians use is telling them that what they are going to see, no, that, excuse me, that they're going to tell them what they see. And I did a, a trick that showed this. You tell you, the audience what they're going to see. And if you do that, the odds go up that they will see what it is you're describing and telling them they're going to see, even though if you hadn't told them that, they would be less likely to see it because it's not really exactly what they're seeing. Right. This is what he's saying right now, is that believing is seeing. He's saying this exact same principle of fooling people. And Elder Bednar takes this principle of fooling people and now makes it a doctrine of the gospel. Believing that which is true but not visible is in fact seeing. And I have to say that this is also very similar to what he said before, which is that faith not to be healed is greater than faith to be healed.
0: I have that quote. I've got that video. I'll show in the intermission. Hey, uh, RFM, it appears to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it appears to me that Bednar is trying to make it look like faith itself is knowledge. Is that the impression you're getting as well?
2: Yes, what he's trying to do is to privilege this idea of feelings that we have when we hear certain things said over actually seeing something or perceiving it through our senses. Yeah. Which he has to do. But once again, this is totally the opposite of what he says or indicates he's gonna do at the outset. Yeah. He's gonna privilege spiritual feelings over objective observation
0: yep yep
2: by the way we're going to get to this in a second so i'll wait till then but um there's so many things to be said about this oh this is what i was saying um what he is doing is saying that faith is seeing faith is seeing right Yep. but seeing is not as good as faith and he'll get to that even more later
1: oh but elder bednar
2: says Elder Bednar says, faith not to be healed is greater than faith to be healed. And he will add that faith in something unseen is greater than actually seeing it. Yeah. So I think this is a great act two for his act one of faith not to be healed is greater than faith to be healed. Because he's following the same kind of pattern of absolutely rational, absolutely rational argument.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. I, I I just don't I don't see how someone hasn't stepped up and said, um, there's no definition anywhere that faith is ever seeing. And my suspicion is he's trying to sneak that in with his fancy quick little flip while quoting the scripture, so no one dares uh, discuss that with him so that he can cover up the fact that he has not seen but his faith doesn't need to see Jesus in reality to be a real apostle because his faith in Jesus Christ it appears to me he's trying to make them equal to just like doubting Thomas I won't believe unless I see So Jesus showed himself to doubting Thomas. He let him feel the prints of the nails and in his side, that sword stab wound. Now that's seeing, but all the apostles today say, well, no, no, don't ask us if we've seen Jesus. We testify of the holy name, but everyone sees that has no power compared to, to Thomas's experience, or to Peter's, or to even Paul's, who claims he saw Jesus, even if it was in a vision that's irrelevant, he saw Jesus and heard his voice. He wasn't just testifying of a name. I mean, it wasn't a name walking around in Galilee healing people and walking on water and turning water to wine.
2: I like it. That's a great observation.
0: Thank you. Not as good as yours, but hey, I'm getting there.
2: (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Don't even do that to me. Sorry. But we do, and I'm going to have a few more things to say about that later when we get to the part about the first vision, which is one of the things he talks about under number one. Yep. But he has to lay all this groundwork first so he can get his audience all softened up and of the right frame of mind to be able to agree with him when he gets to the main body of his talk, which are the those five things in this talk and the five things in the next talk. But it's in this point where he's talking about at the end. he spends a lot of time on Corihor. and then he'll talk a little bit about the ministry of Samuel, the Lamanite, and the people who didn't believe. They thought it was not reasonable that such a being as a Christ shall come, and that some things the prophets may have guessed right among so many because signs were happening in the Book of Mormon. Just prior to Jesus's birth. Yeah. As had been testified to by Samuel the Lamanite. And they're saying, well, they might have guessed right on some of these things. But because they said so many things, so they may have guessed right among so many. And those are the two things he's going to talk about there. I don't want to go into a lot of depth in that because we got to get to the points he's making. But it's at the end of his discussion about Coryhor where he says, in fact, I believe Coryhor's limited epistemology he knows the word. Limited epistemology reveals that the only person in the scriptural account with a frenzied and deranged mind is Corey Hor. So there, you're another one, Corey Hore. Infinity. I know, I, I know you are, but what am I?
0: Stand and then up he says, and a
2: reality." Off. Yeah. Uh, then he says, "It's a reality that Corey Hore himself will acknowledge after being stricken dumb." Stricken dumb. Remember. Stricken dumb. In consequence. Huh? in consequence of the repeated and emphatic pronouncements of his own pseudo-intellectual demands. That's where he calls Coryhor the pseudo-intellectual.
0: And because we critics are unreasonably disagreeing with everything the Mormon leaders teach, by implication, we are also pseudo-intellectuals. And he can't be, though, because he is quoting intellectual scholarship, as we will see. And he is using the scriptures properly to show why faith is seeing.
2: Yes, but he leaves that faith is seeing part. I mean, that's just like an island out there in his talk. It doesn't relate to anything else in his talk. It's like he had this great idea. So he threw it in there, but it doesn't connect to anything else that he's saying. So I just bring it up to to show that. But finally, at the end now, he's finally he's been going on for I don't know how long, but he finally gets to his thesis statement, which is, in fact, I believe it is unreasonable to claim that faith in Jesus Christ is unreasonable. That's his thesis statement for this entire talk. Right. Now, of course, that's needlessly complicated, right? Yeah. Because if you break it down and say it's unreasonable to claim that faith in Jesus Christ is unreasonable and take out the extraneous crap, all you're saying is that belief in Je- or faith in Jesus Christ is not unreasonable. Right. Does that make sense?
0: It does, yeah. Well, he's trying to come across as uh, a higher intellect as an apostle it's kind of like doubt your doubts you know it's unreasonable to be unreasonable the the general authorities in the last decade has appeared to me to try to make it more catchy phrases in teaching now because the same old stuff after 297 years has bored the hell out of us and so they have to try to put something new in but it's not
2: right. It's what we would call in the law form over substance. Yes, He's trying yeah. to impress the audience with his intellect when it's really not intellectual, which I think is kind of the definition of a pseudo intellectual, but there you <laughs> right. have it. And so the other comments I had was, oh yeah, he puts this in the mouth of the critics, right? Yeah. That the critics are accusing them of being unreasonable. It's unreasonable for the critics to accuse us of being unreasonable. I think the reason he he goes to those links is to put it in the mouth of the critic in order to be able to play offense instead of defense. But it amounts to the same thing. Yeah. And I will say this one thing, too. When you say that it is unreasonable to claim that faith in Jesus Christ is unreasonable. Let me tell you back when I was doing apologetics for the decade of the 80s. It was toward the end of that as I'm starting to segue out of apologetics because it's kind of run its course with me. Right. That I realized that I'm sitting here arguing with other Christians about whether there's any scripture outside of the Bible, whether the there's one heaven one hell or three degrees of glory, you know, prophets today, all the things that we argue with Christians about. Yeah. And it occurred to me one evening that actually all Christians, including Mormons, believe one thing in common, and that's that Jesus Christ died and was resurrected on the third day, right? Mm -hmm. And then it occurred to me, you know, all Christians believe the single most unreasonable thing that I think it's possible for a person to believe. And that is that a dead man came back to life. And it was when I realized that, that it also occurred to me that why is it that we're arguing about all these secondary issues about scriptures outside the Bible or prophets today, or the book of Mormon being the word of God? Why are we arguing about all these things when we already agree on the single most unreasonable thing that could possibly be conceived? Because when you believe, when you share a belief that a dead guy came back to life, everything else is kind of secondary, I think.
0: Ah, Good point. So,
2: thank you. So building on that, when Elder Bednar says, it is unreasonable to claim that faith in Jesus Christ is unreasonable. I have to counter with the idea that no, Elder Bednar, the single most unreasonable thing a person can believe is that a dead man came back to life. And therefore, it is not reasonable to have faith in Jesus Christ, at least not if that faith incorporates the idea that he died and came back to life. And by the way, also, that he's coming back again real soon, even though it's taken him 2000 years to get around to it. And there's no sign that he's coming anytime soon.
0: I've got my alarm set. I'm going to be ready. I've got it 15 minutes ahead of time (laughs) because I've got a modern day Urim and Thummim and the seer stone here. Bednar has my permission to say that, or I have his permission. Yeah.
2: Do you want to say anything before we get to the dispensation of the fullness of times section of his talk?
0: Uh, No, I think you've been doing fantastic. I'm trying to to let you do most of the talk, and I apologize. Apparently, my mic is not very good, which really torques my britches, but oh well. I hear you fine. I, I know, but they don't. So it, they say my voice sounds far away and high like a soprano. And I think it's because I sung and it broke my mic. I don't know. I thought that was your <laughs>
2: normal speaking voice.
0: <laughs> RFM.
2: <laughs> okay. Well, you're going to you're gonna have to spell me it sometimes because I'm going to lose my voice. I've been coughing for uh, several weeks well, now.
0: I, I, okay. I so under the dispensation of the fullness up. of times. I can hurry up and throw in this other slide for a minute and talk if you want.
2: Well, we're not even there yet, so I'll do all that, right. and then you can talk about that first point. Okay, that's good. Right. So I've got Damn. something to look forward to. Okay. Under the dispensation of the fullness of time section, he talks about he's had, he's been fifty years a member, full-time missionary, blah blah blah. He's heard all these arguments against the church, and then he says, and I believe the basic arguments used by our contemporary detractors have not changed much since the days of Corey Hoare, and Samuel the Lamanite. Well, there I think that he's showing that he has no idea, or at least he's feigning or presenting that he has no idea of what the arguments are today, because they have nothing to do with Corey or or anything in the Book of Mormon, right. because actually the arguments have changed quite a bit. And yeah. Elder Bednar, if you're watching this, you must know this, because you and the other apostles Were the ones who were in charge of approving the gospel topics essays. So don't sit there and pretend that these are the same arguments made in the Book of Mormon as are made today. But he wants to do that so he can go against the straw figures in the Book of Mormon and pretend that he's defeated today's critics. Right. Elder Bednar knows what the issues are over which people are leaving, but he refuses to talk about them. He's going after straw man arguments in the book of mormon which is presumably safer for him to do the main reason people are leaving the church and stop believing is when they find out their leaders such as elder bednar have been lying to them their entire life i said that before but this is where it appears in my notes in the outline of elder bednar's talk right that's why they're leaving and unfortunately elder bednar is going to be giving us lots of examples of apostles specifically him engaged in the same kind of hide the ball presentation which is why people are leaving the church because if you want to get the truth about the church you can't go to an apostle
0: no and that's they will not
2: tell you they will these are the guys who will never tell you the truth about the church and they've proven it over what 200 years
0: yeah over the course
2: of 200 years they've proven it
0: and we'll see it again tonight when we look at these slides with his five points. Every one of the five points he makes in his first presentation is problematic. Every one of them.
2: Yes, they are all problematic. If you'll hang on just <clears throat> Even if he were correct that these were completely novel ideas from Joseph Smith and there's no counterpart in his culture that he could have drawn them from, Right, his argument still doesn't convince, because innovation doesn't equal revelation. Okay, so his entire thesis, even as he presents it, is blown out of the water at that point. But now, in a few minutes, we're going to go through those individually, the first five, but he still isn't done with his introduction. And he's going (laughs) to say something else. And here's one thing he's going to do, okay? Elder Bednar knows there's a potential objection out there of joseph smith getting some of his ideas from other sources and other books that were in his culture in his environment and that said a lot of the same things that show up as innovations that joseph smith is going to reveal later on after the church is organized in 1830. he wants to deal with that objection up front but I think he does more damage by trying to deal with it than if he had not tried to deal with it and what I'm speaking of specifically here is the Manchester Library there was well, I have a both slides bigger-
0: if you want me to show them
2: if okay in just a, a second
0: right oh sure yeah no
2: yeah yes this is what I'm going to talk about but I'm going to read what he says here okay because What he's gonna say is the Manchester library is five miles away from Joseph Smith's home. That's how far he would have to go.
0: Five mile
2: hike. Five mile hike, that's all it is. And there were books in there that do discuss ideas that do show up in Joseph Smith's theology later on, including some of the innovations that Elder Bednar is gonna be talking about could only have come from God. So he's gonna try and take care of it by saying, Quoting Lucy Max Smith, stating, quote, Joseph was less inclined to the study of books than any child we had, period, end of quote. And all he's going to say about the Manchester Library is this. Thus, the claim that Joseph derived some of his religious and theological ideas from the old Manchester rental library seems unlikely. And that's all he's going to say. And then he's going to go on. Right? A little vague, isn't he's, it? That is all he's going to say about the, I think, demonstrable fact that there were books and ideas in Joseph Smith's Melu that seem very strangely similar to his doctrinal innovations that he comes yeah. up with later on. Yeah. That's why Elder Bednar wants to deal with it, but he doesn't really want to talk about it in depth. But he does give a footnote. Yes. He does give a footnote about the Manchester Library. And that's to the paper that was published in BYU Studies back in 1982. So I looked up the paper and the paper, you yes, she's this quote from Lucy Mac Smith.
0: Are you the allowed paper, to do scholarship? I'm sorry, what? Are you allowed to do scholarship? You looked up the paper? You didn't just believe Elder Bedmar?
2: Well, I thought I should look it up to see what the heck he was referencing.
0: So, so here we so go. Pseudo scholar move for the uh, the show, right? You looked it up. Yeah, you didn't have faith that he was telling you the truth. You went and looked it up. Good job. Right, and
2: here is where Elder Benner gives away the farm. He knows that there are arguments that Joseph Smith derived many of his unusual doctrines from books that had been written and were in fact available in the Manchester Library, only five miles away from his home. Okay, so. Let me ask you this. Is it more reasonable to believe that Joseph Smith derived his doctrinal innovations from books and ideas that were in circulation five miles from his home or that he got it directly from God? Mm. That's the question.
0: Which is is the more rational? Can I flip a coin?
2: No. No, you must use your noggin.
0: Can I use the seer stone?
2: <laughs> you can flip a two headed coin if you call heads.
0: <laughs> yeah, that, no, that's a good point. That, that's, yeah, what is more rational?
2: Right. And so we go to Robert Paul, who wrote this article. And although Robert Paul comes to that same general conclusion, he also has a few other things to say in this relatively brief yeah. paper because. The Manchester Library, we have this godsend, if I can say, that providentially we know what the contents of the Manchester Library was around the time of Joseph Smith. Okay? Yes, we do. So we have that, and he gives that as a list in his appendix. But in the paper itself, let's see what you've got, my friend, as far as quotes from his article.
0: We have very interesting here is I'm just I, I don't have these in any particular order but we can just look at all four of them.
2: Okay go ahead
0: I'm trying this is where, a first class production post okay here we go boy hold on let me let me knock off. right that's not the
2: one. first one. Oh, okay. That's not the first one. That's what that begins with extract. Can we find the one that leads into extract? I hope so. It's going to have to do with uh, American Antiquities.
0: American Antiquities. Okay, hold on. Uh, there it is. Isn't... Is that it? No. Nope. Come on. I'm strike two here. Oh, what a nightmare. Okay, hold on. This has got to be it.
2: Once you get to number four, I think you will have probably hit it by then.
0: Well, the dumb thing doesn't show up. Oh, for Pete's okay. sake. Okay, hold on. I'm getting it. I'm getting it. Just be patient, people. I am an absolute guru when it comes to electronic crap.
2: I can do it Is from here if we need to. Is
0: that it? Extract.
2: No, no. You've shown those two before.
0: Oh for Pete's I'm sorry.
2: I'm not trying to be hypercritical, but no.
0: No, it's all good. You're,
2: I can read <laughs> I can read it, okay.
0: No, hold for on. For example. To the effort to make these stupid slides, I'm going to show them, damn it.
2: This is the one that's at the bottom of the page that starts, and that's not it either. The one that starts with, oh, yeah, for well, example,
0: I know. I know which one it is Josiah
2: Priests, <laughs> The Wonders of Nature. Okay, that's supposed to be it at the bottom. See, that's the one we're going to. But here's the deal. No, let's go back to that one, that same one, okay? Let's go back to that one, please. That's a good place to start. From the paper, can you read that entire paragraph in the middle for me?
0: Yes, I can. While most of the books were not directly relevant to emerging themes within either the new church or its growing literature, it has been suggested that several of the books dealt with material which directly or at least implicitly formed the intellectual material from which Joseph Smith borrowed his doctrines. So themes discussed in some of these books and those developed by Joseph Smith, which eventually were expressed in the religion and theology of the new church include American antiquities, the Hebraic origin of the Indians, the plurality of the worlds, South American geography, missionary efforts among the american indians and early christian developments that's a lot of themes that he had accessible to didn't it
2: in a library five miles away from his house now can you read continue to read that next thing because it's going to going to go into detail about two of those books which are of a special interest to mormonism but you're going to have to read that and then go to the next slide which continues the quote So, go ahead and put that one up that you had.
0: It only lets me do one at a time.
2: Right. But you're going to have to go back to the one you had up originally, just a few minutes ago, just a few seconds ago, the last one. So, you have to go back to the last one to start that sentence. See? Yeah. If that is the correct next slide.
0: I could have swore I did these in order. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. I'm innocent. Is that that's it? Not
2: it? No, that's not the one you just read.
0: <sighs> okay, this is BYP. Oh, hey, look, it finally showed up there.
2: That's not it. It's that's the one you the just other read,
0: Terry. I'm just No, you,
2: it's the one you just read. You had it up and you read from it, remember? It won't. Okay, I'll read the line that leads into the next slide, okay?
0: Oh, okay, go ahead. It won't come up. Oh. I'm, I'm telling you. I have four of them. Okay.
2: What it says is this. For example, this is continuing right after what you read. Okay. For example, Josiah Priest's The Wonders of Nature and Providence Displayed, 1895. It's right there at the bottom. Don't even worry about it. Okay. Okay. Contains a potpourri of topics ranging from natural history and philosophy to religion and literature. This work includes a verbatim. Now, find the slide that goes from there. It starts with Good extract. Luck.
0: Good this luck. This volume in the
2: Manchester be. Library contains a verbatim, and the next word's going to be extract.
0: Extract. This has got to be it. Extract. Yes. That replies. volume that's
2: in the Manchester Library contains a verbatim extract. Now go ahead.
0: Okay. Extract of all the salient arguments of Ethan Smith's thesis of the Hebraic origins of the American Indians presented in the first edition of his view of the Hebrews in 1823. So the priest volume had already begun to circulate among Manchester library patrons by late 1836. So the concept of multiple world systems and of inhabitants in celestial orbs, such as perhaps Kolob, maybe my comment or the celestial kingdom or the celestial kingdom. Yes. In both time and space was thoroughly discussed on two Manchester Library volumes by Thomas Dick, who was one of the most prolific advocates of the pluralist doctrine. His philosophy of a future state, eighteen twenty nine, and the Christian philosopher, eighteen twenty three, deal extensively with the notion that the universe is fully peopled both for the glory of God and for the glory of man. These volumes did. Yes, Kenneth. There it is. These volumes did not begin to circulate, however, until early 1830. Brief extracts from Dick's future state later appeared in the Latter-day Saint Messenger and Advocate, December 1836. So they were utilizing this material.
2: Right. And the slant of this paper is trying to say, well, yeah, they're there, but they didn't get start used or circulated until later on in the 1830s. But that's in the manchester library what we know is that joseph smith has got volumes that are a five mile walk from his house in which appear these kinds of ideas that get incorporated into mormonism in the 1830s okay is every
0: one and of the books of scripture
2: yes that joseph uh, smith produced right well yeah, not the book yeah. of mormon but well, subsequent yeah, but, right Yes, yeah, subsequent scriptures and so the idea is to say, even though these were available in books that were five miles away from Joseph Smith, that because his mom said he didn't really read as much as, as, as his other brothers and sisters, he wasn't that much into book learning, that that becomes irrelevant that those are there, right? right? And so it must be God giving him these ideas that are found in these other books, a five mile walk from his home, because that's the only rational conclusion you can draw. Right. Now, if you can get this other one, because interestingly, I'll just synopsize it, Okay, instead of you going through those slides again, what the author says is, hey, he didn't have to go to Manchester five miles away to go check out books anyway. There's a library right there in Palmyra, which is two miles from his house. Now, we don't have a list of all the holdings of the Palmyra library, but we know they had one. He also talks about all the booksellers in Palmyra and they were going through books like hotcakes. So these are ideas that Joseph Smith could have gotten from books, or he could have gotten them from other sources. The author of this paper says that Joseph Smith probably was more likely to get his information from newspapers and pamphlets and things like that, or talking to other people. Fine, it's all around. Everybody's talking about this. The one single most important subject during the Great Awakening is, guess what? Religion. It's what everybody's talking about. Everybody's trying to figure out what the correct answer is among a host of conflicting views on every subject imaginable associated with Christianity. Yeah. So having said all of that, that's the paper that elder Bednar cites to in support of his one sentence dismissal of the idea that Joseph Smith could have gotten any of his ideas from secular means and books and pamphlets and newspapers in his community.
0: And bookstores that distributed the books to both the Manchester Library and the Palmyra (laughs) Library. But none of this was available to Joseph Smith, according to David Bednar. It's like he lived in a vacuum. And we just know that narrative don't wash anymore.
2: Yeah, he wants to take the single most obvious Basis that Joseph Smith could have come up with these ideas from his community and put it to the side, because that's totally gonna destroy Elder Bednar's argument that they had to come from God. In fact, at the end of this part one, he's gonna say that the only way that anybody could have come up with all of these ideas and done all the things that Joseph Smith did is if they were directed by God. Otherwise, it could never have happened in this or any other universe.
0: Right, right, yeah.
2: So he That's, has to get rid of that. Yeah, I'm just suggesting he doesn't do it effectively.
0: No, no. He really rationally. It, especially when his own Mormon scholars have definitely shown, and it doesn't matter whether they're from BYU or U of U or BYU-Idaho, his own Mormon-trained scholars have shown that the environmental influences, and we do have Dan Vogel in the audience tonight. Welcome, Dan Vogel, my good friend. Uh, He has also shown, so has Tim Rathbone in the audience, that the environmental influences of Joseph Smith through the decades have just been gently increasing until for the last 200 years. It's pretty cotton-picking overwhelming. Yeah.
2: Right, and I talked with a friend of mine who's a professor of classics at Florida State University. Yeah. It's generally understood about this idea That Joseph Smith, I mean, he could have read books and gotten his idea from books, certainly. But also, these ideas are in the environment, and they're being discussed. So he doesn't actually have to read a book to encounter the idea. Now, that sounds kind of amorphous, but I came up with a a good example of that currently, which is this. How many people out there, by a show of hands, how many people in the audience have ever heard of the Big Bang Theory? I'm going to expect every hand's going up.
0: That's and what happens, to that's you have it means. Oh,
2: sorry. <laughs> well, I guess that's probably the least objectionable thing one could say about it. So, <laughs> the, uh, the Big Bang Theory. And most people have a general idea of what it is. I'm not saying a technical, detailed understanding of it. But this general idea of what it is. And then I would ask, how many people have read a book about the Big Bang Theory? And I'm going to guess that the vast majority of, I'm going to guess everybody, virtually everybody's heard about it in our society, because it's one of those ideas that's in the air that people talk about. And I'm going to guess the majority of people who have heard about it and have an idea about what it means have never read a book about it. I know I fall into that category. I've never read a book about the Big Bang Theory. What?
0: Well, I've read enough books that it'll cover you over then on the Big Bang Theory. I've got 15 or 20 over there I've read, so. I'll loan them to you. Yes.
2: You (laughs) see, you are the exception to every rule, Kerry.
0: Yeah, that can be bad.
2: (laughs) But there are people like you who have read about it. But I'm going to guess that the majority of people who know about it, never read a book about it. But it's an idea that's in circulation. And in the same way, in Joseph Smith's day, these ideas about plurality of worlds, inhabited worlds, it was in circulation. Everything's in circulation. He's going to all the different churches. He's talking with people. It's the second great awakening. Yeah. I'm crying out loud. So you don't have to read a book to know about an idea. And Joseph Smith didn't have to read these books, although he may have, but he didn't have to in order to yeah. know about the ideas that were in those books. Excellent
0: point. Yep. 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 OK, I like it.
2: We're almost to the point where he actually gets to the what the heck he's going to talk about. But well, he wants to no, frame this. Listen, he's still listen. done framing it.
0: I know, but this has been very vital and important to do because without the framework, his points aren't going to make any sense.
2: I don't think they, they make any sense anyway.
0: They don't. But I mean, as far as trying to, he wants us to believe. But with this framework, you you can't because it's been so, dare I say it, unreasonable.
2: Okay, I think so too. So his first thing that he gets to, and we need to get to this because we've got to get through this, is the nature and character of the Godhead. This is number one on his list of five things that he'll get to tonight. And then there's five separate things he'll get to in the next talk, which we're not going to cover tonight. But the first one is the, the nature and character of the Godhead. Now, this is how he starts every one of his doctrinal things about Mormonism that makes Mormonism different from a lot of other Christians, right?
0: Correct. Correct. Is he
2: tries to compare it with what other churches were teaching in Joseph Smith's day to show that it's different from what Joseph Smith restored. Therefore, Joseph Smith was not influenced by the false traditions is what he calls them. The false traditions of other Christians of his day. And that first paragraph do you have it with the most common way the Godhead would have been explained by those? Do you have that?
0: Um,
2: let me... If see. you don't, I do. And I just cough, so I should be able to do it. This is how I, he starts off. And this is illustrative of how he's going to start off each one of these sections. So he says the most common way the Godhead would have been explained by those from whom Joseph was learning in the second decade of the 1800s, i.e. other Christians in his society, right, is one divine being who appears in different modes or forms, sometimes as the father, sometimes as the son, and sometimes as the Holy Spirit. Thus Joseph would have almost certainly entered the sacred grove with the false assumption that God, the father was the same being as the son and Holy Spirit. Then he's going to go into what Joseph Smith has happened in the 1838 account of the first vision where there's two beings and then he's going to go to section 130 i think it is where it talks about there's three beings in the godhead right the father having a body flesh and bones son also or vice versa and mouse is the same thing and the holy yeah. ghost being a personage of spirit right yep so this is what he's doing and i want to frame what he's arguing before we dismantle it okay so what he's trying to say is joseph smith is surrounded by these uh preachers and religionists who are teaching this kind of thing and even says the most common way the godhead would have been explained so how is it that joseph smith restores things that are different from what his culture is teaching if in fact he were not a prophet of god that's his argument
0: that's that he's trying argument.
2: to make and i've actually said it more clearly than he says it yeah you but have. i'm trying to steal man his argument
0: okay yeah i'm trying to
2: steal man his argument so that we can find out what it is he says try and put it in the most effective way possible before we start seeing how it doesn't really make any sense what he's saying. And in a couple of ways. Okay. Did you have a slide about the Godhead?
0: I do right there.
2: Okay. Why don't you take it away? Because amazingly, I also, I said, amazingly, (laughs) I said, here, you're going to take it away. And I continue. That's like he does with his intermission. He says he's going to have an intermission and then he continues talking. Newsflash, Elder Bednar. That's not what an intermission is. <laughs> but he'll get to that between points three and four.
0: There you go. The funny
2: thing is, is that he correctly he correctly describes modalism, and he knows he's describing it because he puts modes in quotation marks. Right. That the Father and the Son and the Jesus and Jesus Christ. What does he say? The most common way the Godhead would have been explained by those from whom Joseph was learning in the second decade of the eighteen hundreds is one divine being who appears in different modes or forms, sometimes as the Father, sometimes as the Son, and sometimes as the Holy Spirit.
0: Right.
2: Okay. Now, his argument is that Joseph Smith reveals things that are different from what he's encountering in his environment, but what he has just described is the idea of modalism in the Godhead, which yeah. is exactly the kind of Godhead we encounter from beginning to end of the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon yes, presents a that, modalistic... Yeah,
0: that go ahead. Shock, isn't it what? That should shock us because he's trying to separate the Christian deity from Joseph Smith's and his environment, and yet it's full-fledged in his own Book of Mormon. But Bednar doesn't let us in on that secret.
2: No, he doesn't tell us that part.
0: No. Nope.
2: And so... It also has, okay, so just to put the the fine point on that argument, right? If he's saying that Joseph Smith is presenting revelations that are not influenced by his environment, and if Elder Bednar is saying his environment is teaching the doctrine of modalism, then the question becomes, why is that doctrine present throughout the Book of Mormon, which Joseph Smith produces in 1829? He's undercutting his own argument, at least if you know the rest of of the story
0: story. thank you there's
2: also a problem there's also a problem with the first vision account and that's your slide so please take it away
0: okay Uh, well first uh let me let me just get back to this first doctrinal truth the nature and character of the godhead um since he learned in the first vision that the father and son are separate Both have flesh and bones. The Holy Ghost is a personage of spirit. Christ is literally the son of God in the flesh and the spirit who has progressed to where God is now. Now, the issue we have before us historically is that there are several differing and contradictory First Vision accounts. And not all of them said two personages visited Joseph Smith. So we are giving a justified, reasonable response. We are not being unreasonable when we say this is what Bednar is presenting to us here is a fatally flawed, harmonized view. And it is, unfortunately for him, it is this harmonized view that does not agree with the historical reality in not one account is god the father ever said to have a body of flesh and bone of the first vision not one the 1832 account which is the oldest one the one that joseph smith wrote in his own hand leads us to believe that joseph smith had not developed that his doctrine of the father and son are two separate personages that came later In the 1835, and then of course later on in the official 1838 account. However, it is formally elaborated on not until 1843. And it says the Father, and that's the one RFM was just quoting the Father has a body of flesh and bone, uh, tangible as man's, the Son also, the Holy Ghost has not a body of flesh and bone, but is a personage. Of spirit. Now that was his 1843 view. But for those of us who are not cafeteria historians, like the leaders of the church, we now understand something very significant that the 1832 account, this is the one that Joseph Fielding Smith hid for decades. When he discovered it, a prophet of God in the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is hiding Joseph Smith's most important vision and the account of that vision, because it didn't say what Joseph Fielding Smith thought it should say. And that is how he described his reason for hiding the thing. I mean, wow. So, the lectures on, or the 1832 account has only the Lord of glory who was crucified for the sins of the world. That was Joseph Smith's first vision. And it's Which really, is
2: consonant. I was gonna say, which is consonant with modalism.
0: Which is perfect with modalism. Yes, thank you. Very good point. Yes, and this is the 1832, the earliest. Now we further go on and we realize that the lectures of, faith was in 1835 right now they did have this in the doctrine and covenants the collection of revelations until 1921 so it was there for like 80 plus years almost 90 years yet it has it was then removed like the lost doctrines of the bible i put that in to give a mormon twist to the irony here uh here is the lectures of faith description of god There are two personages, and this is 1835, notice, two personages in the Godhead. They are the Father and the Son, the Father being a personage of spirit. That's not a mistake. You're you're hearing that right. The son who was in the bosom of the father, of course, is a personage of tabernacle. That's the blue lettering there, possessing the same mind with the father. And then the mind of God and Jesus is what Joseph Smith defined the Holy Ghost as. Now, I get this information from my good friend, Paul Osborne, in a serious analysis he's done on the first vision. And he is here in the audience tonight. Hey, Paul, how you doing? I will be doing a a major discussion just on the first vision from Paul's research. Maybe this Thursday night, we'll see. My point here in bringing this forward, because as he showed so well, Elder Bednar is giving us the much later evolved, developed doctrine as if that has always been the belief of the church. And this is what's so unfortunate because we know there has been an evolutionary historical development of all of the Mormon doctrines, but especially this one with the Godhead. And so the scriptures are contradicting themselves as well as with Joseph Smith's doctrines until the contradictions were themselves ostracized, taken out and changed in order to present a harmonizing view. The modern harmonizations of Elder Bednar here hides the fact that Joseph Smith did not grasp God's character. Throughout his life, he kept changing that. And that's startling to a lot of folks when they hear that. But we have the historical evidence i am presenting that in my podcasts as well as videos here throughout his life and teachings he was always developing dubious heterodoxical teachings for decades and when that uh dawned on me when that realization dawned on me It took me months, if not years, to get over that because, of course, we are all raised. Now, I'm 61, and we are all raised with the already harmonized version as if this was had back from 1805, Joseph's birthday, all the way through, and that is simply not true. So that's the problem with the Godhead doctrine in Mormonism as a first doctrinal truth It truly fails.
2: In multiple ways.
0: In multiple ways. I just
2: concluded by saying what you, I think you just said, Elder Bednar goes to the 1838 account of the first vision, but this is critical. Elder Bednar knows full well that the 1832 account exists and what it says. Once the the leadership of the church was responsible for approving and authorizing the church essays, Gone are any days when they could have claimed ignorance. Yeah. Because yeah, they have exactly. to know what's in there because they approved them. They of had course. to read them. They had to approve. them. So he knows what's in that 1832 account. He knows it contradicts his argument and he is intentionally not telling his audience about it so that his audience, his argument will have more force.
0: an authority. Yeah.
2: Right, the it'll apostles. sound more logical than it does if you actually know
0: the facts. Exactly, because the facts aren't logical with the doctrinal claims of the prophets and apostles today. There's the problem. This
2: is what I, Yes, and this is what I meant by saying that one of the main reasons people leave the church is because the leaders of the church, the apostles are not being straight with them. Right. And what Elder Bednar is doing under the guise of trying to shore up their faith is showing them why it is that they shouldn't trust him because he's playing hide the ball.
0: Yeah. Shall we go to number two? Let me keep talking, keep going. Give yes, you a break. Elder Bednar
2: is the problem, not the solution.
0: Oh, and, and it's not that we're crowing about that. But unfortunately, that is fundamental to this whole presentation. Let's continue and show you why.
2: Yeah, one of the greatest disappointments of my life was finding out that the prophets and apostles of the Lord's church that I had complete faith and trust in were not telling me the truth. They were hiding things from me.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Okay, the second doctrinal truth.
0: Yeah, the second doctrinal truth is Heavenly Heavenly Father's plan of salvation. Those who die unbaptized can, through Christ and the temple ordinances, still become like God. The point I will make here, and we will elaborate this on the second part that we do here, probably early next year, sometime in January, we'll do a second part, just like Elder Bednar did. The point here is, this implies that Jesus Christ is not enough and they want to be called Christian, you guys. Now, let's understand this then. Okay, we'll call you Christians. Then why isn't Jesus Christ's infinite atonement enough? Now, the the amazing thing here is the definition of God, and there are two spots. uh, I just quoted the DNC 2017 here that says God is infinite. Now, I'm doing a series of podcasts on infinity and it's difficult to comprehend, but infinity is vastly bigger than our entire universe in both power, size, extent, time, whatnot, whatever. Yet the ultimate creator of the universe, it's not enough to accomplish his goals without extra stuff to do. And so it appears the way they present it, that this is uh, downsizing and infinite atonement. That's, that's just that particular point. Do you, would you like to add anything to that RFM or shall I keep going? We're running out of time here. No, yeah,
2: I'll to- go ahead really quickly about the Heavenly Father's point. plan Absolutely. of salvation, point Absolutely. number two. Am I, yeah. am I muted? No, I'm not even muted. Okay, so... Okay. Uh, what I want to say is this, is that he, he talks about Alvin and Alvin dying and being a source of concern for the family and for Joseph about the state of Alvin's soul because he had died without being baptized into the Presbyterian church that his mom and some others in his family went to. And I think that's really very important because I think that is one of the major threads that Joseph Smith pursues throughout his life is what happens it to is- those who died without having had the chance to hear the gospel. Mm-hmm. And he quotes from he being Elder Bednar quotes from section one thirty seven. He quotes this in his talk. All who have died without a knowledge of this gospel, because remember, there's a the vision Joseph Smith sees Alvin in the celestial kingdom. He says, "WTF? What's yeah. Alvin doing in the celestial kingdom?" He died before the rest before the church was organized. He couldn't yeah. even be baptized, right? He couldn't have gotten the right gospel because it wasn't here yet when he died. I think he died in eighteen twenty three. It was. Yeah. at the end of the year. But, um, so he gets this answer. How is it that Alvin could be in the celestial kingdom? And this is what it says. All who have died without a knowledge of this gospel, who would have received it if they had been permitted to tarry, shall be heirs of the celestial kingdom of God. And also all that shall die henceforth without a knowledge of it, who would have received it with all their hearts shall be heirs of that kingdom. Okay. This revelation is in section 137. This vision was received by Joseph Smith in January of 1836, prior to the uh, dedication of the Kirtland temple, though I think it happened in the Kirtland temple before it was dedicated. But the key there is that Joseph Smith's answer to what happens to those who died without hearing the gospel is not... Being preached to in the spirit world. It's not having ordinances performed for them like baptism for the dead or anything else. It's simply, if they would have received it with all their hearts, if they had heard it, then they'll be saved in the celestial kingdom. That's what section 137 tells us. Now, this is not even the beginning of Joseph Smith's answer to that question. This is actually an intermediary stage in 1836. So really quick, the Book of Mormon has a different answer for what happens to people who die without hearing the gospel. And the book of Mormon doesn't say what section 137 says. The book of Mormon says, if you die without hearing the gospel, you're saved period by the grace of Christ. There's nothing about, Oh, you would have had to have accepted it with all your hearts. You're just saved, period. And this is in Moroni chapter eight, verses 22. This is one of the two places in the book of Mormon where it talks about this but it's very interesting. Are you there? Okay. Yeah. Oh, do you want to read that? Do you have that in front of you? Yes. <laughs> okay, go ahead.
0: Last minute. Because yeah. what we
2: do when we read this is we focus on the little children and we sometimes don't recognize that the same thing that's being said about little children who die is also being said about all those that die without the law. In other words, without a knowledge of. The Literally. Gospel.
0: That's not figurative. Yeah. Yeah. This this shocked me when RFM pointed this out to me. So I asked him if he wouldn't mind if I read it tonight. This is astounding. Moroni. 22
2: through
0: 24. Yeah. Moroni 8, chapter 8, 22 through. So we're talking now, understand this. This is between 400 and 421 AD. This is post Jesus by centuries. So for behold, that All little children are alive in Christ. So that puts our mind on the little children, but observe the rest of the context. And also all they that are without the law for the power of redemption cometh on all them that have no law. Full stop, you guys. There's no exceptions. Wherefore, he that is not condemned or he that is under no condemnation cannot repent, and unto such baptism availeth nothing. But it is mockery before God to denying the mercies of Christ and the power of his Holy Spirit and putting trust in dead works. That's blowing my mind even now when I read it. Christ is the whole answer, according to the Book of Mormon, regardless of whether you've ever heard of him or not. And there's nothing about any other works that the Book of Mormon says dead works in trying to get him saved. They're already all saved. That's amazing. Absolutely amazing.
2: And then verse 24, Old Bean?
0: Oh, oh, yes, yes, yeah. Behold, my son, this thing ought not to be for repentance is unto them that are under condemnation and under the curse of a broken law.
2: Right, so the theology in the Book of Mormon is very simple, or I should say the soteriology relating to those who die without hearing the right. gospel, which is if you don't hear the gospel, you don't know what the law is that God expects you to adhere to. And therefore you can't break the law because you don't know it. And therefore you can't be under condemnation for breaking a law that you don't know about because of that. You don't even have to repent because how do you repent of doing something that you didn't know was wrong?
0: And therefore you're not under condemnation either. And it says that. Right.
2: Amazing. So people who, so people who die without law, which is the vast majority, excuse me, the people who die without law, which in the, the Book of Mormon context is knowing the true gospel, right? Right,
0: right. People
2: who die without the law, which is why you stress that it's 40, 40, 400 years after Jesus. So you can't go and try and make an Old Testament argument that this is what applied before Jesus came, because in the Book of Mormon, it is way after Jesus came yes. that those who die cannot be condemned because they don't know the law. And therefore they can't repent. And not only that baptism availeth nothing. Yeah. So for little children who, yeah, baptism availeth nothing. And I'm just going to say right here that we have this step, this three step process, 1829 book of Mormon, people who die without a knowledge of the law, without a chance to hear it are saved automatically through the grace of Christ. You move forward to 1836 in section 137, which is the one that Elder Bednar quotes. He doesn't quote this stuff from the Book of Mormon. Right.
0: Right.
2: Now, it's changed. And you're not saved automatically if you don't hear about the gospel. Instead, if you would have accepted it with all your heart, then you're saved in the celestial kingdom. And it's not until 1840 that Joseph Smith introduces the idea of baptisms for the dead. And I think that was in the funeral discourse for seymour brunson regardless it's in 1840 in Nauvoo, and that's when everybody and their dog starts running down to the mississippi river and baptizing
0: oh, yeah. each other for yeah. their
2: deceased relatives right yep. yep. okay so the thing i'm trying to the point i'm laboring toward is this is that ordinances for the dead is not where joseph smith starts he starts with a very different idea comes to another idea in the middle of the thir- 1830s and then at the 1840 mark he comes up with ordinance work for the dead including baptism for the dead right the right. thing that really struck me this morning when we were talking about this passage from moroni chapter 8
0: mm-hmm.
2: is that instituting the doctrine of baptism for the dead is not just a theological development along this timeline it actually contradicts what the book of mormon itself says That's what surprised me because the book of Mormon says he that is not condemned, those who die without law, wherefore he that is not condemned or he that is under no condemnation cannot repent and unto such baptism availeth nothing. Nothing. So
0: the book of Mormon
2: says, yeah, baptism avails nothing for someone who dies without the law. Well, in 1840 Joseph Smith's view has changed and he's seeing things differently. And now he's instituting, Baptism for the dead, which the Book of Mormon specifically says, is meaningless. It avails nothing for someone who dies without the law.
0: Right? Yeah, yeah. That that, like I said when you when you pointed that out and we were exploring this, I mean, we were both missionaries for crying out loud, and we both taught all this stuff. And I have never seen it so clearly until just now on, on this development. Uh, and yet this unreasonable contradiction that is supposed to be the truth that's the problem
2: right and once again he's not giving us a as full a description of the historical development of doctrines he wants to take them to where the church teaches them today show that they're not what joseph smith environment was and therefore show it it must have been from god once again that argument is not logical, it's a non sequitur, but that's the best he's got. But when we actually examine it, we find that what Joseph Smith is doing is replicating ideas that were around in his environment, even from other Christian churches, and perhaps especially from Methodism.
0: Well, and then and then also, and I will just say this because I promised him I would. I see Paul Osborne is still posting. X. I will say that is true for most of the doctrines except for the developmental aspect of the doctrine of god and that began to change more dramatically with joseph smith's translation of the egyptian papyri and i have slides i'm preparing a full course lecture on that for this this live session but i just want to give paul credit I think he's on to something. Seriously, the doctrine did change. I mean, all of the doctrines have changed. The way the Mormons will approach this, however, is through this principle that they elaborate on as continuing revelation. Uh, So, of course, yes, today is going to be different than it was last year or last decade or century because God is continually revealing more and more. What they don't let you know is that gives them literally unlimited ability to innovate on anything that will suit the public, whether it is true or not, whether
1: it is
0: God or not. No, yeah, please go ahead. Yeah, when
2: your church changes, it's apostasy. When my church changes, it's continuing revelation, right? Right yeah are you ready to go to the next thing are you ready to go to the next one okay because this is the importance of mortality and a physical body this is number three and this is the way he prefaces it okay some christians in the 1800s believed that the principal purpose of this life was to determine whether each person will go to either heaven or hell And then skipping down to the end of that paragraph, thus I am presuming, this is Elder Bednar, thus I am presuming Joseph may have had some exposure to or knowledge of these things, of these teachings. Now, once again, he's going to go into Mormonism and say, it's not heaven and hell, it's the three degrees of glory, right? However, the idea of heaven and hell is throughout the Book of Mormon, as well as modalism is. So he's arguing that... Yeah, if he's, if he's identifying heaven and hell as a Christian doctrine and trying to argue that Joseph Smith was not influenced by these Christian doctrines that were in circulation in his day, then why is this particular Christian doctrine, which you just described, throughout the Book of Mormon?
0: For 500 pages and 1,000 years or 2,000 years, there is no three heavens idea or a limited punishment in hell that is called eternal punishment, like in the Doctrine and Covenants, this is Christian doctrine in the Book of Mormon. That's amazing. Yeah.
2: Right. And if Elder Bednar is saying that Joseph Smith was not influenced by the false traditions, is how he puts it, of his day.
0: Yes, he does.
2: In the keystone of our religion.
0: Yeah. Thoroughly saturated with it, Noah. And remember, the Book of Mormon is the most correct book on the face of the earth, and it has the fullness of the gospel. And yet it hardly has anything. And they have apologetic ways around that, but I don't find those very persuasive. I never did find it persuasive as an apologist ever either. I was always hoping something better would come up. I always actually, as an apologist, avoided that whole line of saying, yes, the Book of Mormon is, it has the fullness of the gospel. I never told anybody that because I, I just did not like the defense and now I really don't. So anyway, yeah, yes, very good point. But it does
2: show this, uh, where Joseph Smith was in 1829, Versus where he changed things later on as he yeah. developed things theologically. Because he was yeah. a doctrinal innovator. He was an Ooh. eclectic Ooh. aggregator.
0: And it never stopped.
2: Yeah. No, never. Until he no. stopped.
0: Until he stopped. Yeah.
2: And yeah. so. Okay. So you
0: know the next one? The other thing
2: about this, the other thing about this is that Elder Bednar just wants to talk about the heaven or hell. He doesn't talk about it being throughout the Book of Mormon. He wants to talk about the three degrees of glory, right?
0: Oh, true. The, yes, thing he's yes. not,
2: the thing he's not telling us is that another very prominent view of the day was universalism, mm-hmm. which is that everybody gets saved mm-hmm. in heaven, ultimately. And he's also not telling us that that was what Joseph's miss dad believed, which is one of the reasons that Joseph Smith's dad and his mom didn't agree on religion.
0: That's right. He wouldn't join her church at all, the, the Presbyterians. He wouldn't do it. Yeah.
2: Right. And I and I would ask Elder Bednar, why don't you mention what we know about Joseph Smith senior's beliefs instead of presuming what we don't know. And the answer is because it doesn't fit into your argument. He's only going to tell us the stuff that fits into his argument. The other stuff that eviscerates his argument, he's not going to talk about because his goal isn't to find out what the truth of the matter is. His goal is to try and get people to continue to believe by hook or by crook. But this universalism of course fits very nicely into section 76 which will change the doctrine from the book of Mormon into one where virtually everyone does get saved.
0: That's a good point. That's excellent. And didn't, I I can't remember. I know Dan Vogel's in the house too, but I believe it's D and C 19 that the explanation of eternal punishment is God's punishment. It's not that it's endless. It is describing it's the kind of punishment God is going to have to give because people weren't obedient, but that doesn't mean it's eternal, forever, right. in time. There are, it, yeah.
2: there, there are indications in the Doctrine and Covenants there, and also in section 29, verse 30, that even those who go to outer darkness will not be there forever. Oh, And that they will eventually be saved as well, which yeah, is
0: the,
2: universalism.
0: Yeah, that's the one where Brigham Young said, oh no, you go into outer darkness, even the very eternal intelligences that you have been for eons and eons in infinite eternity will be taken apart <laughs>
2: boy yeah and what it says in section 29 by the way i'll just say this okay where it says sure. wherefore i god speaking wherefore i will say unto them the bad guys depart from me ye cursed into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels and now behold i say unto you never at any time have i declared from mine own mouth that they should return for where I am, they cannot come, for they have no, they have no power. But verse thirty, but remember that all my judgments are not given unto men.
0: Oh, interesting. Oh, yeah, wow. and if that isn't is that-
2: a big tease, I don't know what is.
0: No kidding, He's saying right? I've never
2: said that they would come back to me, because yeah. they don't have the power to come back to me. But you remember, oh, I, I haven't told you everything about my judgments. He's leaving this huge loophole yeah. out there
0: good for us I'm to speculate glad.
2: that what he means is eventually everybody will be saved and that is pure universalism
0: it truly and dad is. would be yeah. so proud yeah. yeah no kidding right yeah Dan Vogel has now spoken up yes doctrine and covenants 19 contradicts the book of Mormon I remember he had a big discussion on the message boards about that a few years ago so okay let's move on to this one shall we
2: are we ready for intermission or do you have a slide do you have a slide uh
0: no yeah, there's the intermission
2: to... there's the intermission between oh, three I and thought, four remember i thought,
0: I thought we were going to go through all five and then do the intermission at the end no now
2: what sense does that make Harry?
0: well because we're intermission between... <laughs> <laughs> that makes of... almost
2: as much sense as having an intermission and then continuing to talk which is what elder bednar did
0: Shall we have an intermission real quick? All right. Hold on. Good heavens. Yes. And by the way,
2: here's the thing. I've got a song to play for intermission. We're not going to do an intermission where I keep talking because heaven knows I've done enough of that. Word is out that there's going to be a new version of Follow the Prophet in the primary songbook for the kids. Right. And that there's going to be a verse for each one of the prophets of the church that applies specifically to them. And I was texting with Rebecca Bibliotheca last night. And she asked me this offhand question about, well, when Elder Bednar becomes president, what is the verse going to be that they're going to write about him for Follow the Prophet? So I just dashed off a few lines. I texted it back to her. And much to my surprise, she she's a piano player, otherwise known as a pianist. And. She plays it and sings it and records it. And I've got it right here for intermission time. So this is the follow the prophet verse, which is specifically for Elder Bednar. By the way, I put Terminator Jr. in there. I know she's watching and I apologize. I gotta explain this. I'm not sure she understood the reference because I've said that, you know, Elder Bednar looks like Terminator Jr. It's the eyes, right? I, I think she says terminate Jr. But it's supposed to be Terminator Junior, they say behind his back. Okay. But with that brief clarification, I want to play this, and I hope you guys are gonna like this. Once again, this being a first class production, I'm gonna play this off of my phone. Okay, okay. They say play it
0: away.
2: So I'm so I'm so close to getting there. Okay, here we go. Ready?
0: Yes, good morning, primary children. Today
1: to be learning a new verse of our favorite primary song, Follow the Prophet.
0: Can we all use our best primary voices? Wonderful. Let's
1: get started. Bednar
0: was annoying, sternly he would talk.
1: If you don't go.
2: Okay, now hang on a second, because I'm having a problem with my phone playing the whole thing through. But here we go. I'm gonna try and get it past that. And now we should it was be able to annoying he would talk. If you don't believe me, you can take a walk. Terminator Terminator Jr. Know how that goes, my goodness. I don't know why this keeps cutting out. Yeah, I blame Apple. Idea. Okay, and I think it, this I'm is uh, he knows, bed, he knows the way, and I blame Bedmar. Now, let's do that 47
1: more times, children. Bravo,
2: bravo, Rebecca Biblioteca. Thank you, you are a woman of many talents.
0: Thank you, Rebecca Bibliotheca, you rock, girl. Now let's have an intermission with our beloved Elder Bednar, and then we'll get- That right was right the intermission. Here. No, this is the intermission. That's oh, the, okay. introduct- the introduction song to the intermission.
1: Okay, what do you have? Exactly the same today as it was anciently. So it's not a large corporation, and the apostles are not the board of directors. The Savior knows people by name, he knows their circumstances, and he directs us in our work. Uh, We extend a particular welcome to those of you that are uh, participating and attending your first Beneficial Financial Group event. Welcome to the Beneficial Financial Group family. Uh, We would like to take a special moment to honor a number of special guests with us here this evening. We extend a special welcome to President Gordon B Hinckley, president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and chairman of Deseret Management Corporation, uh, our parent. President Thomas S. Monson, first counselor in the first presidency of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and a former board member of Beneficial Financial Group and his wife, Frances. President James E. Faust, second counselor in the first presidency of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. President Boyd K. Packer, acting president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, and a former chairman of Beneficial Financial Group. We excuse uh, President Packer's wife, Donna, who is visiting with family in the East. We also welcome other members of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles and their wives, members of the presiding bishopric and their wives. That would be exactly the same today as it was anciently. So it's not a large corporation and the apostles are not the board of directors the savior knows people by name he knows their circumstances and he directs us in our work
0: so anyway i had to share that because go ahead expatiate on that please what's that
2: expatiate on that please and please do so keeping in mind the fact that people hear only the audio when i put it up at the rfm site are not going to be able to see what was going on in the screen. So go ahead and describe that for us and let me know what the main point is you're making.
0: Yes. The apostle Bednar was asked, isn't the church just a corporation? And he said, no, we are apostles. The Lord knows each of us by name. And then the video cut to a meeting that was held with one of the main multi-billion dollar corporations that the church owns and the chairman of that corporation was introducing all of the former prophets and several of the apostles who are on the acting board of those multi billion dollar corporations, which
2: and that Bednar, was beneficial life, wasn't it? Was beneficial, was it beneficial life.
0: life, yes. Yeah. And so Bednar is simply not telling the truth whatsoever, trying once again why we don't trust these guys to hide the truth and that. No, I trust them
2: to hide the truth.
0: No, (laughs) to tell the truth. Did I say hide the truth? I meant tell the truth.
2: Yeah. I I thought that I I thought that what Elder Bednar should have said when he's asked the question, isn't is just a corporation? He should have said, no, it's not. It's the only true and living corporation on the face of the (laughs) earth. (laughs) That would have been
0: more realistic than what he did. Yeah. True story. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent point. Okay. Intermission's done. We've got to hurry up here just a little bit. I'm not trying to be a snot nose, but I want to read through this because Elder Bednar here really fails to understand one of the serious scientific problems and issues that uh, face everyone these days due to science. The fourth doctrinal truth, he talks about the creation of earth and the fall of Adam and Eve. All things were created spiritually, then temporally. Earth was organized from eternal elements and the fall of Adam was necessary to bring to pass man's eternal life. Now, this bar chart that I have, I could not for the life of me change to the actual real numbers. So it is symbolic. What this is showing us is that We have many thousands of entire lines of ancestors in the past, which have contributed to our own genetic reality in our bodies not all at the same time either some of these lines existed as far back as four million years ago some of them were as recent as ten thousand years ago some of them could have lived half a million years ago the point is we have multiple ancestors dna in us there has never been a time where there was an ideal prime couple just one man and one woman as a literal truth now it can function as a symbolic lesson or importance but to literalize that there was originally a single pair of humans from which all humans came from is pure fantasy and that cannot be overemphasized bednar of course is not going to tell us this yes geoplanet jane has it right the neanderthals yay yeah we have ancient dna in us man and there's no question about the oh where's rfm All
2: right, am right here
0: Oh, there you are. Okay. Yeah. So, so my point in bringing that up is just one among many, I didn't pick a doctrinal point because I picked a scientific point that this is one of the things that helped me make a a serious decision on what am I going to be an apologist for uh, a corporation or the truth? And I just, I couldn't defend the indefensible. So I quit being a Mormon apologist. So Would you like to add anything, RFM, or shall I finish up with the last point, and then we can?
2: Yeah, if we just go to the last point, I think you've covered everything we need to say about the fourth point. If we can go to the fifth point, and then we'll be done, and and, and everybody will breathe a huge sigh of relief.
0: Yes, yes, they're loving this, I'm telling you. Our audience has been increasing for the last two hours. Woo-hoo! Isn't that incredible? it is. You guys are the best, the best audience in the whole world, man. So can I say fifth, a couple of
2: things about the atonement of Jesus Christ? His fifth point before right? you go to your slide.
0: Absolutely.
2: Okay, he does the same thing and steps into the same cow poo on this one as he stepped in before by talking about beliefs that were prevalent among Christians in Joseph Smith's day that right. also show up in the Book of Mormon, but he doesn't say they show up in the Book of Mormon. Here's right. what. Here it is. At the time of the prophet Joseph Smith, understanding of and teachings about the redemptive role of Jesus Christ and of his atoning sacrifice varied significantly in various denominations. That much is true. One prevalent view, he goes on, one prevalent view propounded that sin is an injustice. Sin is an injustice that creates an imbalance in the divine scale of justice. Christ died to rebalance those divine scales. That's in the Book of Mormon. Mercy cannot rob justice, right? So that that idea of the atonement is in the Book of Mormon. He goes to another belief. He says another belief about the Savior's atonement was that sins have penalties attached to them and a price must be paid for the wrongs committed. That's in the Book of Mormon, Alma 42, where Alma's talking to a son. Now there was a punishment affixed. This is from the Book of Mormon. Which is, is exactly reflecting what Bednar, excuse me, what Elder Bednar has just told us was prevalent among certain churches in Joseph Smith's day. There was a punishment affixed and a just law given which brought remorse of conscience unto man. That's verse 18 in chapter 42 of Alma. Then he goes on in verse 22. But there is a law given and a punishment affixed, i.e. to the breaking of that law. Okay. So what he's doing is once again giving us examples of what is in Joseph Smith's environment, just from the Christian denominational perspective. Yeah, yeah. And saying, how could Joseph Smith have come up with these ideas that are different from what other Christians believed, when actually they do show up in the Book of Mormon, and it appears unremarkable, well, it appears obvious, that if they're in Joseph Smith's environment and they're showing up in the Book of Mormon, odds are that's where he's getting it from. Absolutely. Once again, Elder Bednar is undercutting his own arguments right and left, but only because you and I are talking about the rest of the story. He doesn't talk about this. He's wanting his audience to think that what he's saying is absolute gospel truth when really it's only one side of the picture. It's like Elder O said in 1985 that the leaders of the church have no obligation to tell both sides of the story.
0: Right. Yeah, and that is unreasonable. That is what is unreasonable, as far as or at least deceptive. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, baby. Okay, let's go to this last slide, real quick. And then I do have uh, this is the fifth doctrinal truth that he talked about through the atonement, mankind may be saved. Of course, Old Testament prophets knew of Christ. Book of Mormon says we are saved by grace and individual works or efforts and Christ suffered for our sins. What I just want to point out singly, that was one of the most impressive discussions I have ever read in any text is my good friend, Charles Harrell, whom I will be having on the show here in a couple more weeks. He was a good standing BYU professor. In his book, This Is My Doctrine, For 2011, he demonstrated with extensive evidence, he actually used the biblical scholarship that it's so unfortunate that Jesus Christ is not only not mentioned in the Old Testament, but every single prophecy, allusion, or putative reference to Jesus Christ is and has always been read back into the text from either the New Testament or the modern perspective in other words elder david bednar is mormonizing the bible with this particular teaching here he's not reading and understanding it on its own terms this is what is so critical to grasp so
2: right and that's a great point and something you brought up that you had realized like today and maybe is that Mormons don't just Mormonize the Bible. Today's church leaders are Mormonizing the Book of Mormon.
0: Oh, and is that not shocking? I mean, folks, you've got to be blown away that this is happening. What an excellent point.
2: Well, you're the one who came up with it, but thank you anyway.
0: <laughs> oh, that's it. Now you embarrassed. I came up with that.
2: I'm repeating yourself back to you, and you're saying what a great idea it is.
0: Yes. Oh, well. I think we both elaborated on it. So that counts.
2: <laughs> okay. Yeah, before yeah. we close, I just got a couple more comments now because now elder Bednar's closing. He's done his five things and now he's going to try and get everybody to, how do you feel about this? And how do you, can you pray oh, about yeah, this Yeah, yeah. And, and get this testimony of how you feel about these things, which of course is not a rational argument at all. And here's my comments about this. And that'll be about all I have to say tonight. What he says is reason is important and useful. However, it is neither the best nor the only way of knowing a witness of truth by the power of the Holy Ghost that we invite into our soul produces a spiritual knowledge and illumination and a conviction more sure, more powerful, and more enduring than can be received through seeing, hearing, touching, or rational argument alone, period, end of quote from Elder Bednar. Now this is, of course, not the first time this has been taught by a leader of the church i know it goes back at least to joseph fielding smith it may go back as far as joseph f smith i'm not sure about that but it's total hogwash it's total hogwash. they're saying that a feeling is more convincing than seeing something or perceiving it with your own senses and it's so strange it's so strange to me that this is taught when it is obviously not correct of course, seeing God is better than a good feeling that He exists, and it's throughout Mormonism. What starts off the restoration, if not the first vision? No. Joseph Smith sees God, or at least he sees Jesus in 1832. By 1835, he's seeing two beings, right? 1838 yeah. is clear; it's the Father and the Son. But it starts right. off with seeing, okay? Mm-hmm. And why did Joseph Smith? focus on bringing the saints to a place where they could see God. And by place, I mean a place within themselves or in the temple where they can have this endowment of power and they can see God themselves. That was one of his primary goals to get people to see God. And some of them did, and a lot of them didn't. But, and why is it that the apostolic charge to given to the original apostles in 1835, the original LDS apostles, was to never cease striving until they had seen Jesus. And why is that the sine qua non experience of spirituality in Mormonism is receiving the second comforter, which means having Jesus appear to you from time to time.
0: Oh yes, directly, in person. all
2: all of Mormons put this highest cachet on seeing Jesus as the ultimate witness of truth and knowledge about God. And yet, at the same time, Elder Bednar, among others, are saying that's way down here. Actually, just feeling that he exists and having a a spiritual testimony is much more important than actually seeing him when everything in Mormonism teaches exactly the opposite. By the way, Joseph Smith also said that no one can say that he knows that Jesus is the Christ unless he has handled something, handled something, and that can only in the holiest of holies. Yep. That's one of the senses, and apparently he's alluding to touching prints of nails and hands and feet, which would make sense. Right.
0: And you've got to see it to touch it.
2: Right. And so I have totally given up on this idea and seen it for what it is that leaders teach that having a witness of the spirit is greater than seeing God because it's manifestly incorrect but it does give me an insight into their personality that if they're saying that having a witness of Christ through the Holy ghost is better than seeing him, then it's indicating to me that what they're tacitly acknowledging is they haven't seen him because I guarantee you if they had seen him, that order would be reversed and back to where it was originally with Joseph Smith and seeing Jesus would be at the top of the food chain.
0: Yeah. I was just going to ask you RFM. Um, do you do you get the sense that uh, do you get the sense that had they actually really seen and talked to Jesus, their whole language, the way they use words would be truly different than what they're doing today? Does that make sense?
2: Yeah, it's clear they haven't seen Jesus and they look yeah. for any kind of way, some of them now look for any kind of way they can to imply as strongly as they can that they have seen him without coming out and saying it, because they know that that would actually be a lie. like elder cook, apparently deceiving people into believing he's seen Jesus without actually saying it is okay in his book, but yeah. coming out and actually saying it when it's not true, that would be a bridge too far.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. Okay. So I do have one last Uh, video clip I would like to play. I've looked for this clip for two years and I finally found it and it is spot on pertinent what we're talking about with Elder Bednar saying the greatest truth bearer is the Holy Ghost and it is a sure way to come to real knowledge. I just want to share this clip with you of why that simply Can't
2: work. Carrie. before you hit play, who's going to be talking and what's the context? Can you set it up for us? Oh,
0: oh, I thought everybody would know. Yes, I will. Um, The foremost internet, if not world, Christian apologist William Lane Craig is asked a very specific question about his interpretation of the same idea Elder Bednar is telling us right now take a listen.
1: All right, here's the next question from, uh, again, another question from MythVision. He says, when you say assurance of the Holy Spirit, do you mean something different than the assurance that Mormons experience in their belief in Mormonism? What I
3: said was the assurance of salvation. Uh, And this is a very common Christian experience that Persons who have come to know Christ and experienced his life-changing power have an assurance deep down that their sins are forgiven, that they have eternal life, that they are quote-unquote saved uh, and and going to be with God in heaven for eternity. That doesn't mean they don't have doubts, but they do have this deep-seated fundamental assurance. And I think that that is born by the witness of the Holy Spirit to you. Now certainly Mormons will speak of something similar, uh, a burning in the bosom when the Book of Mormon is read. But I would say that whereas we do not have defeaters for the witness of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament sense, we have uh, overwhelming defeaters for the truth of Mormon belief. I, and anyone who is interested in that, just read a book on Mormonism, its history and doctrine and Joseph Smith. I, I think that there's just no chance that Mormonism could be true. And therefore it follows that this emotional experience of the burning in the bosom is not of a radical experience. It has defeaters. Remember what we said a moment ago, that the way something seems to you can justify you in believing it if there are no defeaters of that seeming. Uh, And so in the case of Mormonism, and I would say Islam as well, there are very powerful defeaters, but I don't think there are in the case of the witness of the Holy Spirit.
1: Okay, that was... uh...
2: So what do you take from that, Professor?
1: (laughs) To me,
0: personally that destroys the argument entirely of a spiritual witness. Because if the Holy Ghost is actual now, and I mean for real in the universe, let's give it the benefit of the doubt and all of its description, it is a testifier of truth, then it could not and would not let William Lane Craig say what he just said. Nor would it or could it let David Bednar say what he's saying. You notice by the use of the Holy Spirit as the final say-so, the Christian can eliminate the Mormon, and the Mormon can eliminate the Christian and the Muslim and the Muslim can eliminate the Christian. And the more you get the point, it isn't a final say-so. The Holy Ghost is telling, oh, just everyone, just what they want to hear. My view is right. All of you are wrong. So is yeah, that and the I would, Holy
2: Ghost? Right. And I would go one step further because I'm just hearing this for the first time from this individual. Yes. But I would say... I would have to say, if the Holy Ghost is testifying to you that something is true, that overrides any defeaters. And by defeater, he's using this term, which I think means reasons to believe that it's not correct. Rational reasons to believe it's not correct. So he's saying if you get a witness of the Holy Ghost and there's no rational reasons to believe it's incorrect, then that's true. But if the Mormons get this belief from the Holy Ghost, but there's all these reasons to believe it's not correct rationally, then it's not true. My idea, though, is that if the Holy Ghost is going to bear witness to something that's true, it's true regardless of how many defeaters there might be. And those defeaters or rational arguments are going to have to eventually give way in light of the pure revelation that came from God with the testimony of the Holy Ghost. And, of course, that's where Elder Bednar and Mormonism comes in. It doesn't make any difference how many reasons there are to not believe it rationally, although he's not going to say that. But it doesn't make any difference. He implies it with Manchester Library reference. The Holy Ghost trumps all. Yep. And I've got a feeling that who is is it? Dwayne Craig. What's his name? Lane Craig.
0: William Lane Craig.
2: Who just said that. Yeah. He says there's no defeaters with his Christianity. I'm going to suggest that maybe he I'm going to suggest that maybe he hasn't studied his Christianity as much as he studied Mormonism. (laughs)
0: precisely very well said yes any more than the mormons have studied christianity as well as they should right fair enough mormons don't study mormonism
2: as much as they should
0: no exactly so okay hey as much as i love you on my show my good friend uh i guess we better call it good we have covered all five Points of view. I will get my mic fixed. I have seen the complaints. I apologize if it's been difficult to hear me. I will truly work on that. Just as I get the electronic fancy stuff working, my mic condemns me. So, anyway, there's always something or other to work out, and I will do so. So, in the meantime, remember have fun, do well, be good, work hard, and we will be back next week, next Sunday with Cheryl Bruno one of the authors of Method Infinite, where she will defend herself against Dan Vogel's ideas or at least share why her views are valid and uh, just like Dan has been doing. So the discussion carries on, which is wonderful. This is what we're looking for. Everyone gets a voice and a say-so, including you, audience, in the chat. So we will thank you again, RFM. It has been an absolute blast. And uh, we are going to head out so that we can go to dinner or bed. And we
2: will get to part two sometime in the future, just as Elder Bednar at the end of his part one announces there will be a part two sometime in the future.
0: Very well said, my friend. You guys have a good night.